what he believes in. What you may not know, and I discovered this this morning, and he may deny this, of course, but too late now, is, is how he actually got to believe in God. And, and it, it all has to do with a rather beautiful young redhead at the age of 15. I mean... <laughs> who sat in front of him in class, you know, I'd go no further than that. I'll leave it to him to see how much of that he's, he's prepared to vouchsafe to you. What can I say about Lewis? A regular fixer, I'm delighted to say on the Today programme, he is, he is a great adornment to, our, to the national scene. Indeed, he's essential, in my view, to the national scene. You know him, well, at least if you don't, you should acquaint yourself with his work. Buy his book, Six Impossible Things Before Breakfast, because it's terrific. Well, I think it's terrific, but there we are. Um, he had a faith until he was 15. He was Jewish. Well, he is Jewish, because you don't stop being Jewish. But he, he practiced his faith until he was about 15, lived in South Africa, left South Africa, no longer believes, as you know. Um, and no doubt he will tell us uh, why. However, we're going to kick off uh, with uh, Bill. And the deal is this. They get 20 minutes each. Then there's a rebuttal, 10 minutes each. Then there's a rebuttal of the rebuttal, seven minutes each, and then there's a five-minute sort of summary. So that's how it's going to work. Ten, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, seven minutes, and five minutes. That's, uh, that's the deal. And then at the end of all that, um, we will sit together, the three of us, and um, see if there are any other issues to explore or perhaps make it a little more personal, possibly even animated, though I dare say they'll be perfectly animated while they're here at the lectern. So would you first welcome, please, Bill Craig. Thank you, and good evening. I want to begin by expressing my thanks to UCCF for inviting me to participate in tonight's debate. And I also want to say what a real privilege it is to be sharing the podium with Dr. Wolpert this evening. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming out to share this evening with us. It's my hope that our discussion tonight will be a genuine practical help to you as you work through these issues yourself personally. Now, in asking the question, is God a delusion, it's imperative right from the start that we clearly define our terms. The dictionary definition of a delusion is a false belief or opinion. Therefore, if Professor Wolpert is to persuade us that belief in God is a delusion, he must show that belief to be false. Accordingly, in tonight's debate, I'm going to defend two basic contentions. First, there's no good reason to think that belief in God is false. And secondly, there are good reasons to think that belief in God is true. Consider then my first contention that there's no good reason to think that belief in God is false. Now, I'm going to leave it up to Dr. Wolpert to present arguments against God's existence, and then I'll respond to them in my next speech. But I want to simply note in passing that if he's to justify an affirmative answer to the question before us this evening, then he does owe us such arguments. So let's turn then to my second main contention, that there are good reasons to think that belief in God is true. However unfashionable it may appear, I'm actually convinced that there really are good reasons to believe that God exists. And let me just sketch tonight briefly some of those reasons. Number one, God is the best explanation of the origin of the universe. Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Why anything at all exists, instead of just nothing? Well, typically, atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused. 
But there are good reasons, both philosophically and scientifically, to doubt that this is the case. Philosophically, the idea of an infinite past seems absurd. If the universe never had a beginning, that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. David Hilbert, perhaps the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, writes, the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas but are real, the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of past events can't go back and back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. In one of the most startling developments of modern science, we now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 13 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event known as the Big Bang. What makes the Big Bang so special is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. As the physicist PCW Davies explains, the coming into being of the universe, as discussed in modern science, is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. The Big Bang thus marks the origin not only of all the matter and energy in the universe, but of physical space and time themselves. Now, of course, alternative theories have been crafted over the years to try to avert the beginning predicted by the standard model. But none of these has commended itself to the scientific community as more plausible than the Big Bang Theory. In fact, in the year 2003, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin were able to prove that any universe which has, on average, been in a state of cosmic expansion cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. The Lincoln pulls no punches. I quote, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. That problem was nicely captured by Anthony Kenny of Oxford University. He writes, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. 
But surely that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Such a conclusion is, in the words of philosopher of science, Baron of Kanichider, in head-on collision with the most successful ontological commitment in the history of science, namely the principle, out of nothing, nothing comes. So, why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a transcendent cause which brought the universe into being. We can summarize our argument thus far as follows. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, as the cause of space and time, this being must be an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unfathomable power. Moreover, it must be personal as well. Why? Well, first of all, because this event must be beyond space and time. Therefore, it cannot be physical or material. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description. Either abstract objects, like numbers, or an intelligent mind. But abstract objects can't cause anything. Therefore, it follows that the cause of the universe is a personal, transcendent mind. Secondly, how else could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect like the universe? If the cause were an impersonal set of necessary and sufficient conditions, then the cause could never exist without its effect. If the cause were permanently present, then the effect would be permanently present as well. The only way for the cause to be timeless and the effect to begin in time is for the cause to be a personal agent who freely chooses to create an event in time without any antecedent determining conditions. And thus we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Number two. God is the best explanation of the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. In recent decades, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that the initial conditions of the Big Bang were fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a precision and delicacy that literally defy human comprehension. This fine-tuning is of two sorts. First, when the laws of nature are given mathematical expression, you find appearing in them certain constants, like the gravitational constant. These constants are not determined by the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants. Second, in addition to these constants, there are certain arbitrary quantities which are just put in as initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy or the balance between matter and antimatter in the universe. Now, all of these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow life-permitting range. Were these constants or quantities to be altered by even a hair's breadth, a life-permitting balance would be destroyed and life would not exist. For example, if the atomic weak force 
or the force of gravity were altered by as little as one part out of 10 to the 100th power, the universe would not have been life permitting. Now, there are only three possible explanations of this extraordinary fine tuning, physical necessity, chance, or design. Now, it can't be due to physical necessity because, as we've seen, the constants and quantities are independent of the laws of nature. In fact, string theory predicts that there are around 10 to the 500th power different universes compatible with nature's laws. So could the fine-tuning be due to chance? Well, the problem with this alternative is that the odds against the fine-tunings occurring by accident are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. The probability that all the constants and quantities would fall by chance alone into the narrow life-permitting range is vanishingly small. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are vastly more probable than any life-permitting universe like ours. So if the universe were the product of chance, the odds are overwhelming that the universe would be life-prohibiting. Hence, we may argue as follows. Premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. And thus, the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life implies the existence of a designer of the cosmos. Three, God is the best explanation of objective moral values in the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. By objective values, I mean values which are valid and binding independently of whether anybody believes in them or not. And many theists and atheists alike agree that if God does not exist, then moral values are not objective in this sense. For example, Michael Roos, a noted philosopher of science, writes, the position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Like Professor Roos, I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the morality evolved by Homo sapiens is objective. On the atheistic view, some actions, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is morally wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. But the problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down I think we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior, they're moral abominations. Roos himself admits, and I quote, the man who says it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five.
end quote. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. Hence, our argument can be summarized as follows. One, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, but objective values do exist. And therefore, it follows logically and inescapably that three, therefore, God exists. Number four, the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus imply God's existence. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. New Testament critics have reached something of a consensus that the historical Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come, and as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But certainly the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in by faith or not. But in fact, there are actually three established facts recognized by the majority of New Testament historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, on the Sunday following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist in the study of the resurrection, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic Geralt Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Two minutes. Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah. And Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. N.T. Wright, an eminent New Testament scholar, has concluded, that is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. And therefore, it seems to me, the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. One minute left. But that entails that God exists. And thus we have a sound inductive argument for the existence of God.
Finally, number five, God can be immediately known and experienced. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. This was the way people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experienced reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is the case, then arguments for the existence of God could actually distract us from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, then God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And therefore, I think we have good grounds for thinking that belief in God is not a delusion. Thank you. But um, who can list the five points of Dr. Craig's opening statement? I like to try. Yeah. All right. Um, origins of the universe. Fine tuning of the universe. Um, objective morality. The historical documentation of Jesus. And the, uh, oh man, the, and this last one was a. You can personally know God exists. Yeah. Nice. So the, the fourth one you said, the uh, historical documentation of Jesus, but specifically... The resurrection. The resurrection, right. So, yeah, that's all five. Awesome. It's <laughs> a lot of information. I feel, like, I feel like you have some experience with this. I, 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 gotta, I gotta tell you guys, to be honest, all right? I've been watching, uh, not this one, fortunately. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've been uh, on my way to and home from work. I've been uh, plugging this into YouTube and listening to it through my radio. I'm not watching it. That'd be unsafe. <laughs> so I've, I've been able to hear three or four of his lectures now. So okay. Nice. Any? Uh, yeah. So. One of the things that I, I forgot to mention was obviously he uses Big Bang cosmology um, in his uh, debates, and he is an old Earth creationist. Um, obviously, I'm not, you know, teaching that in this class. That's not the position of the church. Um, but just to let you know that even using the Big Bang cosmology, you can show that even given that belief you should still believe that there is a creator. Um, so that's just something to um, help us in our conversations. Like if you come across an atheist who right. believes in the Big Bang. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because he did the, the, you know, the universe at, what, 13 billion? Right. Um, yeah, so, and actually I taught, um, I taught a, an apologetics class at a church in Nebraska and I went over this material and I mentioned that and uh, one of the deacons or one of the elders was sitting in my class. He said, "That's just your opinion. Don't you know? You can keep that out of the class." And I said, "Look, um, you, you know, even if you don't believe that the the, earth, the the universe is that old, you're not 
probably going to convince other people who already accept the science that it's a young Earth. But what you can do is enter into their belief system and say, look, you believe this. You believe that the universe is still finite, that it had an actual beginning, and if it has a beginning, therefore you should believe that it had a beginner, something that caused it, that's outside of it. And here's what that might look like. So you can use it as an internal argument or an external argument, either one. Are there good Christians debating the, uh, I guess, the old universe versus new universe? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would say uh, outside of, I would say actually the majority of Christian theologians worldwide probably are not younger. It's mainly evangelicals who are younger. You know, you go back to my days in college, Bible college. The young earth, as a matter of fact, uh, Henry Morris was a professor at mm -hmm. uh, Virginia Tech at that time and had not even begun to, he was thinking, but hadn't moved into the realm of what where he had begun. And uh, I was taught definitely the uh, gap. The gap, gap theory. Mm -hmm. Which puts a lot of time and space in between. Between one and two, Genesis. Yeah, one and two. That's right. Uh, God created. God created a perfect earth, but the earth became void. Yeah. So anyway, and then Henry Morris came on the scene. That would have been in the uh, probably seventies to the eighties, and he began to do his work and to do his writing, and thus uh, they. Evangelicalism moved with him right. into this young earth. I, I still remember <laughs> my theology professor dealing with some of this, and uh, when Morris was, he was coming on the scene at that time, uh, Dr. Bowman would say, Well, you know, you, you pin him down. Well, what do you believe? And you'd have to know Dr. Bowman anyway, he's from Hickory, North Carolina. That explains a lot, I suppose. But uh, he said, I'm a smiling gapist. <laughs> yeah. Gapist. A gap. I'm a smiling gapist. Yeah. He, he was not moved with that. But uh, Henry Morris has been a persuasive individual in evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, I will say, you know, not to get off on that tangent too much, but, um, you know, there are a lot of secondary issues that people take very, very um, personally. And this is one of those issues. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of those issues that people divide over. And it's sad to see that state yeah. um, in, in the conversations in America today, especially in America. This is, this is, you know, I talk to people worldwide, and this is largely an American phenomenon where people kind of get up in arms about it. And, uh, you know, like Paul says in Ephesians, if we're to be united, we need to be united around the gospel and not be divided on those secondary issues. That's correct. Um, so there are, you know, very sincere Christians on many sides. There's like, you know, Dr. Craig actually in his uh, systematic theology class goes over about seven different interpretations of the first few chapters of Genesis. And that all of these interpretations have very prominent scholarly proponents. And at the very end he says, look, I I actually am, I don't know what the correct interpretation actually is. 
Um, but I do know that um, all of these have some type of biblical support, and so one should probably not be super dogmatic about it. So, anyway. Um, so next is going to be Dr. Wolpert. He is an atheist, and he's going to be obviously giving the uh, opposing side. So we're going to do the same thing with him and um, really paying attention to what arguments he actually gives for the question, is God a delusion? Professor Lewis Wolpert, <laughs> 20 minutes. much. Um, I'm not sure that I really want to thank the organizers for asking me to do this. <laughs> it's, quite a, it's quite a complex issue. And, and let me try and explain to you why. The vast majority of you here, we've worked out something like 90%, um, believe in God and are religious. I am not against people being religious. I think it helps you a great deal. I'm against religion when it interferes in the lives of other people. Um, I'm very happy to discuss this. I'm not, in other words, if you believe, for example, that the fertilized egg is really a human being, which some people in religious organizations believe, then I'm very hostile to you because it's nonsense. This is one of my subjects, developmental biology. Or if, for example, you're against contraception for religious reasons and therefore AIDS, as it were, can become more common. So I'm not against people having a belief in God. I do believe that that belief is false. And I'm saved by the fact that whatever arguments I give you, I have no illusion, I have no delusion, that I will persuade you to change your minds. Beliefs are like possessions. And I ask you, when did you really last give up a basic belief for your partner or your parent or your child. It's very hard to do so. Now, just let me remind you a nice statement from Richard Dawkins, who's been mentioned already. He points out that in talking about God, there exists a superhuman, supernatural intelligence who deliberately designed and created the universe and everything in it, including us. Now, if you believe that, and many of you do believe that, you feel better. And that, I regret to tell you, is why you believe in it. And that really is the origin of religion. People who have religious beliefs are on the whole healthier. Not much healthier, don't get, don't get carried away by it. <laughs> But you do do better, you, you, on the whole you do better. Also belonging to a religious community, there's no doubt about it, can have great advantages. I'm not so, I don't want to argue that religion is always good, I don't want to get involved in religious wars and something like that. But the real point is, it provides an explanation of a very deep problem, and that's why we are here at all. Now, the problem about believing in God is looking for evidence. I regret to tell you, and we won't have a discussion with you later, but I will later on, there is zero evidence for the existence of God. I'm terribly sorry, that there just isn't. Now, first of all, just let me remind you that every culture in the world, hundreds of them, have gods of some sort. You are focused on the Christian God, but may I ask what's wrong with their gods? 
I mean, why do you think that your God, and I assume you're all Christian gods, why do you think your God is sort of better based than, all, than, than theirs? And there's a very nice story from um, someone who works on religion, an anthropologist called Pascal Boyer. And he was at a dinner in Oxford. Maybe it was Cambridge, it doesn't really matter, but a smart English place. <laughs> And he was telling them about a group he'd been studying in Southern Africa who believed that there were witches who flew over the territory there and killed some of their cattle. And the head of the college said, how can people have such absurd ideas? Isn't it ridiculous? And Pascal didn't have the courage to tell them that these people knew about Christianity and had often asked them, why was it that the people in Christianity were still suffering because a couple of their ancestors had eaten some fruit. <laughs> Please don't think that your ideas about the nature of pain and suffering are all that different from religions in other parts of the world. Now, the other problem with actually finding evidence for God is to actually to give some evidence. But the first problem is, if God exists, who created God? And why has God got a human form? You know, I think God would be, if there were a God, I'm sure he'd be much more imaginative than to be like one of us. Good Lord, would he have backache? You know, I mean, that he should take on a human form is natural from a historical point of view, because that, as I'll explain in a moment. But to, to think that God, who might have done all these things, was human, seems to me bizarre in the extreme. And of course, there's zero evidence for it. Let me try and explain to you, you won't like it one bit, as to why you actually believe in God. First of all, it makes you feel better. You have someone to pray to. And the historical origin of this really goes back to your ancient ancestors oh, a couple of million years ago. A couple of million years ago, humans, our ancestors, started making tools. You know, you've all seen those little stone tools. Now, making them, animals can't do that. Please don't tell me how clever your dogs and cats are. Really, they're not as clever as you think they are. And I know there are repeated articles in the papers how gorillas and chimps are wonderful tool makers. They can actually take a stick and actually get some ants out of a tree. But, you know, it's pretty limited. But humans started making tools, and in order to make tools, you have to have a concept of physical cause and effect. And what makes you human is not God, but your causal beliefs. You have a concept of physical cause and effect, and that led to tool making and technology, and that is what drove human evolution. And as someone pointed out, to get a feel of the difference between you and animals, imagine seeing a tree, uh, sorry, imagine seeing a wind blowing a tree and some fruit falling off. You would perfectly well know that in order to get that fruit, all you would have to do is to shake the tree. We believe that no animal seeing that would have the foggiest notion that if they shook the tree, the fruit would fall off. They could learn to shake the tree if they did it by accident, but they could never actually intuitively do that. It's a slightly controversial field, but really what makes you human is the concept of cause and effect. Now, when that happened, 
And the advantage, I don't have to tell you the advantage of having tools. There are all sorts of people that think that human evolution is really based upon humans understanding each other. I think chimpanzees and baboons have quite a good understanding of what's going on. It's really quite a, quite a reasonable society. And can I just point out to you, if you think it's social relationships that really matter, if you had to go into the jungle, who would you rather, what would you rather take with you? A friend or an axe? I'd take an axe if I were you. <laughs> However, once people had a concept of cause and effect, they wanted to understand other things. They wanted to understand why the sun went around the earth, of course it doesn't. <laughs> they wanted to understand why we got ill, and particularly we want to understand why we died, and in fact, we wanted to understand everything. Now, the one cause they were absolutely sure of was a cause made by another human being. And that's why they invented gods with human characteristics. And so I'm sorry to tell you, you won't like it, it's not attractive, that the origin of religion comes from tool making. It comes from a concept of cause and effect. And those people who had such beliefs in religion, first of all, had a great advantage. First of all, they no longer worried about many of these problems as you don't, because you know why we're here, because God put us here. And it provided explanations for ill health, death, the afterlife, and, and everything else. And it had the other advantage, you could pray to that God. And prayer is very comforting, even though it may not lead anywhere. But nevertheless, it's very comforting. It does offer you something to do. And I think that those people who became, I think of those people who became religious, survive better. And I would like to argue quite persuasively that you have a bit, not a God gene in your brain, but a propensity to believe in religion is embedded in the neural circuits in our brain and controlled by our genes. Because those people who became religious survived better. And my evidence, my evidence that we do have that is the following. First of all, just can I remind you that many people have actually religious experiences. A wonderful book is by, oh gosh, um, William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience, in which he points out that many people have religious experiences which are as real for them as anything in their real life. They are, of course, delusions, but nevertheless, they are real for them. And these are, I'm afraid, in one's brain. And let me just tell you why I think these circuits are there. If, for example, you've just been isolated recently, the active ingredient of magic mushroom, if you take a group of people, particularly those who have some religious inclination, and give them this active ingredient, many of them afterwards have religious experiences, or religious-like experience. And people do have mystical experiences. If you just... I mean, I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands. I would be absolutely amazed if something like 10% of you have not had some strange experience, certainly out of touch with the real world over the last year, and that's what most surveys show. And you have to ask yourself, why if you take LSD, you know, and, and if, you, if you have a look at Timothy Leary and people say, uh, you know, they believe they actually were God, they believe they were the universe. It can't be this boring molecule that turns on these feelings. It must mean that they're activating these circuits in your brain. 
I'm sorry to tell you, you and all human beings have quite a strong set of mystical circuits in your brain. And it comes, I would want to argue, from the fact that those people who believed in religion and mysticism survived better in our ancestors than those who did not. So that's, you know, I think one way of thinking about, um, the, 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 uh, about the origin of religion. It's not easy, I mean, I can't guarantee you that all these things that I'm saying, because I'm talking about things that happened tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million years ago, but at least I think it makes a plausible story. Because I think when one comes to the existence of God, you have to ask once again who created God. You see, if you're going to go for causal effects, so there's a God, then you have to say, but, sorry, where did God come from? It's not a question I hear often answered. God, where did you come from? Not even God answers that. And it's bizarre to have a human-like God who has no cause for his own creation. And you really, if you go to the Bible now, must I really take seriously that women came from Adam's rib? I'm terribly sorry, I'm a developmental biologist and I am a biologist. I want to tell you, women, yes, women are peculiar, there's no question about that. But they did not come from Adam's rib. Whatever their peculiarities are, it's not because of the rib-like nature of their ancestry. That I can tell you. I think you also have to remember, and this is a slightly delicate area, that the stories about and the Gospels about Jesus were written 30 to 40 to 50 years after his death. No one who wrote the Gospels actually observed any of the events that they are writing about. That's my reading of the actual, of the, uh, uh, of the actual stories um, uh, as, 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 I, as, I, as I look at the literature. And you don't have to worry too much about morals. You see, even chimpanzees are quite kind to each other. They, they can cooperate, and, and, and so can gorillas. And you don't have to have a moral sense from some supernatural being whose creation we don't understand. Evolutionists have looked at this quite clearly. People like Trivers and Hamilton have pointed out that we have in our genes, no, that our genes program us to behave really quite well, particularly to those who share similar genes. And there's also evidence that humans behave quite well. If you're kind to me, on the whole, I'll be kind to you. If you're nasty to me, I'm afraid I'm going to turn against you. And this makes for a perfectly reasonable um, um, uh, moral position without, without any difficulty whatsoever. And if you come to all the complexity, and I mean I know the origin of life is a, is a tricky issue, but evolution Evolution's really very clever. No, it's not clever. It's really very dim, to put it bluntly. But it achieves remarkable results. Randomness and selection can get you to remarkable positions. This is not, not the moment for, for me to give you, give you a, 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 a lecture on evolution. But just remember, evolution proceeds very slowly. And I think that anybody thinks that God created you. What about all that evolution? You don't believe that you descended from apes? Just look at some of your friends, aren't they a bit apes? Come on, you know exactly what I mean. 
you must be dotty not to think that. I think for the moment, let me then just sum up again. I think the evidence for God is simply non-existent. Yes, there is some evidence for God in the Bible, but that was nearly 2,000 years ago, and I keep asking my religious friends, could you please tell me what God has done in the last 2,000 years? And there's a mumbling and a bumbling, but no answer whatsoever. Thank you very much. arguments he gives in favor of the question, the affirmative, God is a delusion. We're programmed to believe in God by our genes. Okay, that's one. <laughs> yeah, we made tools. Because we made tools. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 that's exactly what I'm saying. It's really quite hard to in my opinion, to pinpoint his main uh, topics, because it seems to all over the little scattered. Right. I so was, he said anything that was very logical. And then he even said that he didn't have anything to back up what he was saying. It just made a plausible story. So like he didn't cite anything. He didn't like, you know, any research that's been done. It's a, it's a tricky situation. He said that six times. No, it's yeah. a tricky situation. So. So in his conclusion, he said, <laughs> in his conclusion, he said there is no evidence for God, and um, except for in the Bible, except for in the Bible, and that was two, you know some thousands of years ago, and that people can't answer him about what God has done since then. Did I hear him say that there were no writers of the Bible who were? Yeah. Yes, yes, he did say that. No writers who were present during the at the period of the resurrection. Right. He he just flat denies that. Yeah, right. well that's not I mean that's shocking, man. They had five hundred people at one time right. saw him. Yeah. Scripture says and well, he's saying specifically the writers, yeah. which, you know, and, and he gives dates for the Gospels. He said, you know, the Gospels were given, were written somewhere between 30 and 60 years after Jesus. That no one, none of the writers were around. But that, see, there's a difference there. What he's saying is that the Gospels were written 30 to 60 years after Christ. But then what he says is none of them were around when Jesus was alive. How does he get there from the dates when the Gospels were written? That's some, you know, that's another question. But you're, you guys have kind of hit the nail on the head with it's very hard to see what his actual arguments are. He just basically denies that there's evidence and then asserts, really, that evolution shows us that God is a delusion. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask that first guy a question. And his five points, he said one of his points was fine-tuning. Do we not believe that God is infinitely intelligent? Do we not believe that God is infinitely powerful? Yeah. Well, then when he does something, it's going to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's his point. Yeah. And so why would he have to fine-tune it? He wouldn't have to do like we have to do. We have to cut a board off twice or three times. <laughs> and it's still too short. Yeah. Well, so the fine-tuning argument is this, that when you look at the way that the universe is, 
that the force of gravity or the force that holds the, the atoms together, yeah. it's so perfectly balanced. Balanced. It's That's so right. it's so balanced that if it were off even slightly, yeah. intelligent life wouldn't exist. And so what's the best explanation of that? It's that there is a designer, a transcendent designer, a mind behind how all of these constants and quantities of the universe are set up. That's the best explanation. So that's why he's in favor of God as the best explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe. Because a lot of people say, well, it's just on accident. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I, I never had a conversation with him about it, but when I was in college, the guy that was uh, uh, a physics professor had worked at uh, uh, what's the place in Tennessee where they developed a bomb? Did a bunch of uh, some Interstate 40, and I've been through it probably a hundred times. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, he uh, was was a Christian and active in a Baptist church, and he he was a PhD, and I think he took over the department as head of the department. Uh, the older guy that was actually head of the department, I think he was about ready to retire. But uh, he, uh, all indications just from, I was a student, and, but uh, I believe he believed in God. I believe that that professor believed in God. Uh, and he was probably the most uh, technically intelligent guy oh, yeah. at the university at that time one of the one of the most uh, and, and I don't I, he, he he seemed to like I say I never sat down and talked sure. theology with him it's a common myth that um, the majority of scientists are atheists uh -huh. um, it's actually close to half and half and it uh, heavily depends on what field of science yeah they're in um, and actually, a buddy of mine did some research on the people with the highest IQs in the world. And he said seven out of the ten people in the world with the highest IQs are theists. They believe in God. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just this, you know, this thing gets repeated over and over. So you just start to believe, oh, yeah, the majority of scientists are atheists. And that's just not true. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Yeah. Well, Mr. Craig address the origins of God. Oh, <laughs> we're about to come up on his first cross, you know, first uh, first rebuttal. So, yeah, that's a good uh, good segue. So he is going to address just Dr. Dr. Wolpert's uh, arguments. Bill. speech I said that I would defend two basic contentions in tonight's debate. The first of those was that there's no good reason to think that belief in God is false. Now, as I listened to that first speech by Professor Wolpert, I discerned basically three arguments that he gave to show that belief in God is false. The first one is that people are religious because they feel better, and that's why they believe in God. Or alternatively, it is because of the human concept of causality that leads
convince them to believe in God. It may, in fact, be hardwired into their brain. Now, the problem with this sort of argument is that if you say that because belief in God is occasioned or caused in this way, therefore that belief is false, you commit an elementary logical fallacy known to every intro to philosophy student called the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy is trying to invalidate a point of view by showing how that view originated. And the fact that beliefs arise through people's wanting to feel better or perhaps through causality or even being hardwired into the brain does nothing to prove that those beliefs are false, which is what he must prove if he's to show belief in God is a delusion. For example, it's been shown by child psychologists that children have hardwired into them the belief that when an object they see disappears behind a screen and then reappears, they believe that the object continues to exist when it goes out of sight. It doesn't disappear from being and then pop back into being. This is a hardwired belief in children, and yet I think none of us would say, therefore, that belief is false. Now, the fact is that uh, some uh, child psychology studies do indicate that children also have such an instinctive belief in God, and I'm inclined to view this as God's provision. Now, the skeptic, like Dr. Wolpert, thinks that this is a delusion. But then if he's to justify his view, he owes us some argument to show that the belief is false. Otherwise, he's committing the genetic fallacy. So the issue tonight before us in the debate is not how religious beliefs originate, it is whether or not those beliefs are true or false. Now he does give a second argument designed to prove that God does not exist, and that is that there's no evidence for God's existence. Well, this is not a good argument, frankly, because in the words of uh, a forensic scientist I once met in Australia, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Just because there's no evidence that the butler was the murderer doesn't mean that the butler was not the murderer. Or to give a scientific example, we have no evidence so far that there was an early inflationary era in the origin of the cosmos. But woe be to the cosmologist who says because we don't have any evidence of it, therefore it did not exist. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. He needs to give a positive argument against God's existence. Now his third argument that he offered was the simple question who created God? Well, this is not at all difficult to answer. A timeless, eternal being cannot have a cause. As Keith Ward points out in his book, God, Chance, and Necessity, if one asks what caused God, the answer is that nothing could bring into being a reality which wholly transcends space-time and which is self-existent. To fail to grasp such an idea is to fail to grasp what God is. Moreover, I have given an argument that there exists such a being, namely my first argument based upon the beginning of the universe. It leads us to the postulation of a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and uncaused eternal being. So none of these arguments is any good that he's given us against the existence of God. If he's going to answer affirmatively that belief in God is a delusion, then we've got to see some better arguments in favor of that proposition. Now, what about the arguments that I gave? My first argument was based upon the origin of the universe, and apart from the who created God question, I saw no response to this argument in his first speech. What about the argument based upon the fine-tuning of the universe? Again, there was no response to that. 
But let me reinforce this argument by dealing with a possible objection that often arises. Many times people will say, well, maybe our universe is just one of an infinite number of parallel universes, a sort of world ensemble, and by chance alone we appear somewhere in the ensemble, and therefore we shouldn't be surprised at the fine-tuning of the universe. The reason this objection does not work, as pointed out by Roger Penrose at Oxford University, is that if our universe were just a random member of a world ensemble of randomly ordered worlds, then it is far, far more probable that we would be observing a vastly different universe than what we do observe. For example, the chances of our, our solar systems forming instantaneously by random collision of particles is about 1 out of 10 to the 10 to the 60th. Now that number is an inconceivably large number, but as Penrose says, it is, it is incomprehensibly smaller than the improbability that the low entropy level of our universe, which is fine-tuned for our existence, should exist by chance. Therefore, if we were just one of a randomly ordered uh, world ensemble, we should be observing a much, much smaller universe. The fact that we do not, therefore, disconfirms very strongly the world ensemble hypothesis, which suggests that we are not here due to chance. Rather, as I said, we're here due to design. My third argument was based upon moral values in the world. You remember I argued if there is no God, then there are no uh, objective moral values. And many atheists agree with this. For example, Richard Dawkins in his recent book is quoted by Professor Wolpert approvingly when uh, Dawkins says there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is uh, every living object's sole reason for living. Now, the problem is that that is inconsistent with Dr. Wolpert's own statements of moral value, such as that religion should not interfere with the lives of others. That is a moral judgment on his part. So it seems to me he's caught in a contradiction of, on the one hand, saying there are no objective moral values on an atheistic evolutionary view, but on the other hand, agreeing with me, and I think with most of us, that in fact there are objective moral values. Torturing a child for fun is objectively morally wrong. And if you agree with that, then I think you'll agree with me that God exists. Fourthly, I spoke of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And here Dr. Wolpert responded to my evidence for the empty tomb, the resurrection appearances, and the origin of uh, the Christian faith by saying that the Gospels were written later and they're not based on eyewitness testimony. I'm afraid that's just misinformed. Uh, in uh, the review of John Dominic Crossan's book, The Birth of Christianity, in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, published in the fall of 2000, the uh, reviewer writes, the dominant, and in my mind, the likely view is that the passion narratives are early and based on eyewitness testimony. Specifically, with regard to the empty tomb and the appearances, N.T. Wright in his epical book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, has concluded that the empty tomb and appearances have a historical probability so high as to be virtually certain, like the death of Augustus in A.D. 14 or the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. 
Those are the facts. The only real question is how do you best explain them? And I have never seen a naturalistic explanation of these facts that is as probable or plausible as the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, what about my argument based on the personal experience of God? Here Dr. Wolpert says, well, there are varieties of religious experience. Certainly there are. And I would say that a person is justified in believing in the object of his religious experience unless he has an overriding defeater or reason for thinking that that experience is delusory. The problem is in tonight's debate we haven't been given any good reasons for thinking that belief is delusory. So it seems to me I'm perfectly rational to believe in God on the basis of my personal experience of God unless and until he can give me some good reason for thinking that that experience is delusory. He says, well, what has God done in the last 2,000 years? Well, for one thing, he changed my life. Uh, I had a personal experience of God, uh, and uh, I see no reason to doubt the veridicality of that experience. Um, so the belief in the existence of God, like the belief in the external world, or the belief in the reality of the past, uh, is a rational belief to hold unless and until someone provides some sort of overriding objection. So I think so far in tonight's debate, we've not seen any good reasons to think that the belief in God is false. We've seen the genetic fallacy, we've seen red herrings, uh, and other uh, inconclusive arguments. On the other hand, I think we've got five good reasons, all of which point to the existence of a transcendent creator and designer of the universe who is the locus of absolute value, who has revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth, and who can be personally known and experienced. First of all, can I deal with the genetic fallacy? The fallacy is yours, not mine. You didn't understand my arguments at all. My point about genetics was not to, in order to explain um, uh, whether God exists or not, but I was trying to explain why people believed in God. It wasn't evidence for or against the existence of God. You totally misunderstood my, my, my argument. My argument against God's existence doesn't depend upon genes. It's the absence of evidence. And to use catchphrases, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. I mean, that's philosophical bunkum. I mean, I'm terribly sorry. If God exists, you've actually got to find some real evidence. I'm terribly sorry, we scientists do base the way we think on evidence. I mean, if I say that I think that you're a kangaroo because I dreamt you were a kangaroo last night, that is not evidence of the slightest importance. I think you really, really, if you want to go, you look for evidence, you've got to find evidence. And when I say, what has God done in the last 2,000 years? And his flip reply is, well, he made me religious. I'm terribly sorry, if you really want to take that seriously, um, you might as well say, well, almost everything you've done has been determined by God, and I'm afraid that isn't evidence. You've really got to find something more plausible that God has done in the last 2,000 years in order to be even in the slightest bit persuasive. With regard to Jesus, I'm slightly out of my depth on the scholarship. The stuff I've read says it's totally unreliable, and there are many books that actually argue that, and I don't find that very useful. There's no reason. If you go to many societies who have a stronger belief in God,
world as Christians do? How would you persuade them that their beliefs are false, whether, whereas yours are actually right? And when we go back to the Big Bang, and we want to explain how it occurred, maybe the really true and reliable way to say is, we don't know. You know, there's nothing immoral or unsacred in saying, we just don't know. I mean, I don't think that that has really come into many philosophers' minds. We scientists, by contrast, do say sometimes, terribly sorry, we just at the moment don't know and may never know. But rather than say that, I'm afraid believers invent this mythical creature who has no basis, who will, and when I say how is God created, is denied that this is, he is so amazing, it's a he by the way, in a human form, he's so amazing, he didn't need a creator. The universe needed a creator, yes, but not God. Come on, you can't take that seriously in any way whatsoever. And as far as fine tuning is concerned, I'm terribly sorry, it may be a very small probability, but that's tough luck. The fact that there is the probability at all is why we're here. That all those constants fit with the actual functioning of the universe, that's the way it is. Yes, it's very improbable. Tough luck, you just have to live with it. Many things in life are very improbable and you have to live with them. You can't say they don't exist just because you don't like how, 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 um, how improbable there are. And once again, when I come back to moral, I see I've got here moral, moral values certainly could be genetically um, determined. So I think what one really has to ask also, again and again, is you have to be reminded that all cultures believe in a God of some sort. And yet, and I say you Christians because I think most of you are Christians, believe that your God is the true God, and theirs, of course, is a delusion. I think you really lie in bed at night and be sure, why are you so sure that your God is the true God and was not created by anybody, whereas the universe was, whereas their gods are totally unreliable, and really totally deluded. I really cannot see, and I repeat it again and again, if one is to believe in God, one has to first of all go against an enormous amount of what we know about science in the world, that you've got to go into the world of the supernatural, which goes against everything we know about physics and biology, and I'm terribly sorry, I don't see how you can possibly go that way. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but not supporting it. Yeah. 
And then can you take that seriously? That's, that's his argument. Can you really take that seriously? And then he moves on to the next thing. Colbert <laughs> based his total argument and his position on, as he said, the people he had read. He's reading the wrong people. Well, he never cited any of it either. No. So what people are you reading? That, are you really well, Dr. Craig cited a lot of scholars, too. Sure. But, but if you actually go back and, and look at the people that he cited, Dr. Craig is citing not only Christians, Dawkins was but atheists. That's right. Atheist ethicists, That's atheist correct. cosmologists, right. atheist scientists. Yeah. No, but the other guys so, didn't even say who he's reading. Right. <laughs> well, but no, he didn't say who he was reading, yeah. but he said there were scholars in particular. But probably from the time, well, let's go all the way back, maybe even to his birth. Childhood, parentage. What bent did his parents have? Now, the, the man's a brilliant man, there's no question. But did they push him into this vein of his uh, culture, which is anti God? Richard Dawkins, who is yeah. tossed around a lot in this, he was raised in Catholic schools. Right. Um, and he was actually abused by a Catholic priest. There you go. That's um, an experience. So he sounds angry almost at Christianity, this guy. Like the way that he talks. Two, I mean, it, it's from an, it sounds like it's more from an emotional standpoint. Well, one of his main points is how do you know your God is better than all the rest? Right. Yeah. And that, that's all he's got. Yeah. Right. The argument from religious pluralism, um, the variety of different religions out there and the different gods. The problem with that is just the existence of other views does not invalidate any of them. Yeah. At most, it means that they can't all be true. But that doesn't mean that the Christian concept is false. Right. That requires additional evidence. And Dr. Craig gave evidence for the truth of Christianity. It wasn't like he was just, you know, assuming it. Mm -hmm. So he didn't really address anything. <laughs> so yeah, so hopefully one of the things you, you got out of this was how effective, I think, it shows that preparation can be. Um, that, that really raises the importance of the command in 1 Peter 3.15. You know, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you to anyone who asks, and do this with gentleness and respect. I think Dr. Craig um, is very respectful, um, very gracious, but also very thorough. He's not afraid to call if you get a chance, watch the rest of this because they have a sort of conversational back and forth where all three of them, the moderator and uh, those two, Craig and Wolpert, are all just sitting in the chairs uh, right there next to the moderator and they're having this conversation and uh, there's some really, really good dialogue there. What's the setting of that? Uh, I don't university know. University or some... It looks like a church, but it could be a university. Uh, he said it was a university. I was looking at the audience there. Yeah. Very yeah. mixed. It was, yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. 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 Most of his debates happen 
universities. Right. Yeah. And they're packed out. Like the one at Purdue University had like six to eight thousand people. Yeah. All right. Josh, you mind closing spring? Well, I think there's time to come together um, to learn how to defend your wonderful creation. Sometimes I just feel humbled and very small, but this is very valuable and I appreciate it. Thank you for Tyson here and Maria opening up my eyes and many more to, to these arguments, to this cause. Continue to lead us. Bless our church. Amen. 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 Uh, I guess this was uh, missing. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's it's <laughs> <laughs>